are entering the Freedom Hut. The GOP refers Comey and Clinton for criminal investigation. A number of members of Congress have put that forward. We'll talk about what that means and what we can expect from it. Also, will Mike Pompeo make it through a Senate vote? A secret meeting with North Korea? Did that happen? Also, follow up to our deep dive into the Starbucks unconscious bias fiasco and also some follow-up to the southwest flight and that harrowing situation that and more coming up this this is the buck sexton show where the mission or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence One make, make no mistake america great you're a great american again the buck sexton show begins Activate. former cia analyst former member of the nypd buck sexton it is buck sexton now Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for hanging out. Great to be with you. I'm out here still on the the West Coast, the Left Coast. Some would say the Best Coast, but I would disagree because I am from the East Coast. And uh, the the other place that people just refer to as the city. Uh, I'm from New York City. People from L.A., they'll all say you're from the city. Uh, so I'm having a great time out here. We have a lot to talk about today. And I want to start with this uh, referral. You know, because you have all these former senior figures in the Obama administration who have come forward to be part of the hashtag resistance. And they are lending a lot of uh, credibility or whatever credibility they can to the notion that this Russia collusion investigation is going to come up with some kind of end state that brings down all all things Trump, right, that ends with the president either uh, removed from office by the Senate after being impeached or arrested or, I don't know, they've got all these fever swamp fantasies they run around with. But it's based upon effectively waging a form of legal warfare against the administration with the help of the media, right? The media takes the, the talking points, the storyline, and runs with it that these former officials came up with. And in the earlier days, the officials and the media, as we know, came up with this together. So they're like a symbiotic organism. They're working in in a pair here. You've got the former administration officials of the Obama administration working with people in the media. And, you know, I, I take this position of I really wish we could not make this about wanting our political rivals to be imprisoned. You know, I re- would really like this to be a situation where we weren't just deciding that the way to settle our differences over policy was to find some excuse to try and ruin someone's reputation, their livelihood, maybe even ruin their life over the criminalization of politics. And this has been a central feature of all the anti-Trump stuff that's going on. And so finally today, uh, you have this GOP referral um, that, at first glance, you might think to yourself, all right, well, what is this really going to do? I think it's the first step in a much longer process of pushing back against all the things that have been done against this administration by people who are willing to use and abuse the law in order to fight their political battles. You know, enough is enough. I think we have reached the point where we have to fight fire with fire here or it never stops. And that means investigating some of the loudest voices pushing for investigations of Trump. And 
Some of those who have been uh, making themselves like Comey, among others, very prominent voices in the anti-Trump effort that is out there right now. Uh, that's, I think, what you start, what you're seeing now. You have some members of the House who are coming together and are saying, "I just can't stomach this anymore. I can't be in a position where there are all these different investigations looking at Russia collusion and and there's nothing on the other side." How could we take it for granted at this point that there's honesty at the at the top reaches of the FBI when it comes to the uh, well, the Comey situation. I mean, you got the president of the United States actually tweeting out that he thinks Comey has broken laws. You have members of the Senate saying they think that Comey has leaked information that is classified in order to score points against the president. And nothing seems to happen, right? No, no one on our side ever gets the benefit of the doubt, and everyone on their side just gets to walk away from it scot-free. And... Finally, I think there's a turning of the tide here. I think it's switching a little bit. I think things are uh, are changing in that regard. Um, you had Comey on The View earlier today, um, where, uh, among others, my friend Megan McCain uh, presiding over the proceedings there. And this is how that went down. Play clip 10. I have in front of me uh, a letter that was drafted by 11 House Republicans. They've sent this letter to the Department of Justice mm. and the FBI. Yeah. They are requesting a criminal investigation of you, Director Comey, as well as Hillary Clinton, Loretta Lynch, <laughs> Andrew McCabe, uh, FBI agents Peter Strzok and FBI counsel Lisa Page. Uh, and it appears that they are alleging potential violations of the law regarding the Clinton and Trump investigation. They're arguing that your decision not to seek charges against uh, Clinton for her use of a private email server suggests an improper investigative conduct, potentially motivated by a political agenda. And they're also saying that you leaked classified information. Uh, and they refer to the seven memos you wrote about your conversations with the president. Does any of that seem unreasonable to you? Uh, given the investigations that are already underway and just drag on and on, and as we know from the Mueller probe, just continue to sweep in more people, more information, just a giant vacuum cleaner disrupting people's lives all over the place. And in some cases, as in the case of General Flynn, uh, destroying reputations and upending lives. What about what has been put forward here by these conservative lawmakers in a letter to Attorney General Jeff Sessions is out of bounds? I think the answer is nothing. I think the answer is that we should have done this a long time ago. Why is it that Republicans need a reminder that they are in power? How is it that somehow the Trump administration has been put on defense on all of these issues? Now, I know some of you are probably yelling, Buck, and Sessions recused himself and the deep state is already there and Trump has to root it out. And I understand all of that. But GOP members in the House specifically need to step up and get some things done. It can't just be, oh, the other side fights dirty. Well, you know what? Start throwing some low punches yourself. Get in there, make some noise, and let's get toward the end of the Democrats. If we can get to a place where the Democrats no longer feel like their go-to 
is uh, people would call it lawfare, right? Use of the of the law as a tool of political warfare. That's what they're doing. They've cheated the administration out of so much time. By the way, Comey, in response to what was just read to him on The View, remember, Comey's Mr. Like, uh, unflappable. He's giving, uh, he wrote a book on, on leadership. And I don't think anyone is inspired. I will say this. I don't think there's a single person that's going to read that book and say, wow, James Comey's really changed my perception of how to lead. They're reading it because they want to see where he bashes Trump and others want to see Wow, this guy Comey's really disconnected and very, very weird. Uh, but he responded to that, and here's how that went. Uh, Eleven, please. I know I'm doing a lot of shrugging today, but I, 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 I haven't read it. I don't know what to make of it. Seems they've been saying that stuff since the Clinton email investigation. A whole lot of that's already being looked at by the Inspector General of the Department of Justice, which is a very good thing. And I don't have any other reaction. Whole lot's being looked at by the inspector general. We'll see. I don't have any other reaction. All right. We'll see there, Mr. Comey, how all this shakes out. Um, But, you know, there's also a part of that wants to always warn you that even as we get to the truth on some of these matters, whether it's how Hillary's emails were actually handled. uh, I don't mean by Hillary. We know how that went. But I mean by those who are supposed to investigate it. uh, How the Department of Justice was abusing its authority to look at the Trump administration or look at the Trump campaign and then the administration. Uh, Remember this, that they understand what's within their discretion. You're dealing with a lot of very shady lawyers here. When you're talking about the deep state in particular, think of it as shady lawyers. And then you'll understand, ah, so they do things that are unethical and unfair and wrong, but not necessarily prosecutable. Meanwhile, they love to find all kinds of ways to prosecute other people for things that aren't even unethical or wrong, but they will twist and contort the law, as they did, for example, with Scooter Libby, in order to get the desired political result. So I, I like that the GOP members of the House that took this step today are putting it out there, and at least it shows that there is a, a recognition at one side understands what the stakes really are and we'll take it to the mat. And I think Republicans get a little stuck in a kind of boy scoutism. You know, we don't want to do that. We're going to, rec- we're going to recuse ourselves. We're going to step back from this process. We don't want to be the ones that are unduly politicizing our institutions. Well, I, I can understand those sentiments, but I also feel like at some point you just got to roll up your sleeves and say, we are in a street fight. And that is the reality of the Trump administration right now. They are besieged. They are surrounded by people trying to take them down. And some offense from the GOP on all this would be nice. It really would. And not just not just a sudden shift in the GOP saying, oh, yeah, let's the strike on Syria. They were all behind that one. I don't mean, you know, not, not that offense. I mean, political offense here at home. Uh, whatever your thoughts are, I would love to hear it. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, we have so much more. Stay with The irony here is quite frankly hard to believe. You know, some of the language that Mr. Comey uses, uh, like he, he says, well, it's currently, or he, I think he said it was, it's certainly possible 
that the Russians had information on Trump. Well, it's certainly yeah. possible that the Russians could have information on Comey. It's certainly possible that the Russians could have information on Hillary Clinton. They're supposedly going after Michael Cohen for an FEC violation because of this non-disclosure payment. Now, that's not really a theory that's been that's been tried before. I mean, it seems a little odd to me. But if that is potentially an offense, well, isn't camouflaging these payments? What they did was they paid from the Clinton campaign to a, a law firm, Perkins Coie, and then Perkins Coie uh, paid Fusion GPS, Christopher Steele, and that's how the dossier was developed. So they effectively disguised the fact that they were funding the dossier. That's not the way right. the federal election laws are supposed to work. You're supposed to disclose your expenditure. So if you're going after Cohen, why isn't anybody also looking at how the Clintons handled this? Those are just two points right there where you could see GOP go on offense. And it would be really nice. I don't really want to have to keep coming into a news cycle and, and trying to analyze it where I'm saying, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're leaking this and that, and they're saying that this Trump administration official is going to be facing charges and that one has had all of his stuff seized. They're playing hardball, right? I mean, Mueller has the brass knuckles on. He has seized the president's personal lawyer's uh, effects, or I know he had it laundered through somebody else, right? It was the Southern District of New York, you know, tell me, and the judge who had hand, uh, put Hannity's name out there, was officiating at Soros's wedding. I, I get it. I get it. But we know who's behind this, really. We know what the actual chain of events is that led to this. The mother's got the, uh, mother's got the brass knuckles on, and on our side is like, well, those might hurt. Enough is enough. You had uh, Nunez there and uh, Ron DeSantis make some very good points. On, on Nunez's side of things, the notion that James Comey thinks it's acceptable, responsible, in any way, uh, fair play, you say, well, I mean, he, he could have, you know, the Russians could have information on Trump. Yeah, the Russians could have information on literally anyone. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just a smear, but it's a smear given the uh, additional credibility by a lot of folks because it comes from a former FBI director, the scorned Comey. Sank to Comey, as I like to call him. And I think it's any time we hear this from some of these former uh, former officials, Obama appointees or not, I don't care. Anyone who's out there thinking that they should leverage their, their previous office that they just left in the national security realm. I'm not talking about elected officials or politicians. and I'm talking about people that are supposed to be nonpartisan public servants. And they go out there and they're waging a one-man or one-woman war against the administration. And they say things like, well, the Russians may have information on Trump. The response from GOP should be, that's garbage. That's unethical to say. It's not right. It's not fair. It's like what Brennan did the same thing. It's not just Comey. We're seeing this happen time and again. And it's new. You didn't have Bush administration officials who were coming out. And I mean, in the national security side, you don't have Bush's head of the CIA or Bush's you know, secretary of state that in the first year of Obama's term was saying, well, you know, Obama, I mean... We had some, you know, I heard I heard a rumor about some super secret stuff about him and a domestic terrorist in his room and, you know, a long time ago, his living room in Chicago. Although that actually would have been based on something that we all know about. Um, but you see what I'm saying. They weren't making themselves political pugilists in the way that you're seeing from Comey and uh, Brennan and, I mean, Mueller. Do we really think that there's, there's a, not a coincidence here also? You look at the very 
stinky cases, in my opinion, that have been highly politically charged in, uh, in recent years. And you've got uh, Scooter Libby, Comey appoints Fitzgerald to look into Libby. Okay. And well, not to look into Libby, but to look into the leak. And then Libby got jammed up and all that. Comey is all over the Hillary email and all over Russia collusion and all that stuff. We know that. And he manages to set the table so that his buddy Mueller gets a point. I mean, you look at all this stuff and you're like, it's just too much. It's just too much. If you didn't believe there was a swamp before, you certainly believe there is one now. True of, a deep, true of the deep state as well. Oh, on DeSantis, I should note, and the, uh, you know, th- this is what we need to see more of, too. He's saying... Representative DeSantis is saying, look, if they're going to go after uh, Cohen, Michael Cohen, on some kind of an FEC, you know, they're going to come up with some construct of the case. Oh, it's, it was structuring payments to avoid FEC regulations, whatever it is. If they're going to go after him on that, we should be talking about, well, what are the creative ways to use the law? And this is what I mean by fighting fire with fire. What are the ways that we can use existing law to put some fear into the other side? Because I, I used to feel like, you know what, I, I don't want... I'm opposed to the weaponization of law for political purposes, and I still feel that way deep down. But I also think that at some point enough is enough, and you got to fight fire with fire. You see there's a, an apparatus out there of the Democrat Party and the media and assorted lawyers and activists and NGOs that are looking for ways to create narratives of criminality to saddle the Trump administration with. And we, we where there and there's so much more obvious criminality. We're talking about the Clintons and the emails and the Clinton Foundation and and the, the conduct of of people, the FBI and DOJ leaking information to hurt Trump. Right. There's real criminal activity on that side. And we're like, well, you know, there's there's people looking at it. You know, maybe they'll come up with something. No. No, we need to push harder. Uh, let's give the Democrats something to think about. Let's let's create a legal nemesis for the Democrats to have to tiptoe around because that's been their primary opposition against Trump. all the other stuff they said about fascism and a crashing economy and a stock market that tanks we all know that wasn't true <laughs> so what are they left with this lawfare against trump how do you fight back against it not just with a good legal team which the president certainly needs but also by picking out what it is on their side that is vulnerable where the law has been broken and saying let's go after that uh, we got more follow-up to the uh, Starbucks uh, debacle uh, that I want to talk to you about. So uh, that's going to be with us here. Uh, stay right there. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. See, the Wall Street Journal here agrees with uh, with yours truly. On the issue of, uh, not that, I don't know, some of you are probably like, Buck, who cares? But, I don't know. The Wall Street Journal's got some great people. Our friend Kim Strassel's over there, some really talented writers. Uh, but the editorial page here is saying that Gorsuch's opinion was correct. See, I don't just go out there and fret right away. I don't show them all the, oh no, Gorsuch, it's not what we thought. He's a liberal. He's a stealth liberal. No, no, no. This is, uh, in a sense, it's encouraging, and in a sense, it's discouraging. So let me, and this is kind of a follow-up to a discussion on yesterday, but just by way of quick review, so there is a, uh, the case is Sessions v. DiMaia, and it had to do with the, how the Immigration and Nationality Act lets the government deport any immigrant convicted of a crime of violence. And what this 
particular Supreme Court case turned on was whether uh, burglary is considered a crime of violence. And then the specifics in the statutes of what applies and everything else. And you know right away that uh, Kagan, who was the justice who wrote for the majority, uh, you know, Kagan and Sotomayor, et cetera, they're, they're going to take the position that's just favorable to immigrants because that's, remember, these are illegal aliens. These are not, we talk about, and it's, you'll notice it's becoming so hard. It's intentional too. It used to be that they were just fighting over the specific terms we could use. It went from illegal alien to to illegal immigrant uh, to undocumented immigrant, and now it's just undocumented. Right? They'll just call people undocumented for shorthand. Um, but beyond that, now they're actually using the term immigrant for everybody, which is a way of creating the perception of a equivalent legal status for illegal and legal aliens, or illegal Im- legal immigrants and illegal aliens, or legal immigrants and illegals. Uh, and it makes it hard. You, I'll read, I'll look at headlines. They'll say, you know, immigrant man convicted of whatever, whatever. I'll say, immigrant man? Well, okay, why is, oh, oh, you mean illegal alien convicted of. And we'll go down the whole, go down the whole list. And then you'll hear things like, well, you know, immigrants are actually, have a, have a lower crime rate than native-born Americans, which I always think is an interesting statistic for them to pull out. Because I guess what we take from that is, yeah, immigrants are better than Americans. Uh, that seems a bit, Seems a bit sweeping, doesn't it? I, I'm not. I'm not about to sign on for that one. Uh, that the media thinks that that's a way to ingratiate themselves uh, with the American people or to win over the American people. It tells you a lot about where their where their minds are. But they now make it almost impossible to tell what kind of immigrant we are talking about, whether somebody is legal or illegal in the country. So I, I just like to point that out so you keep that in mind. Uh, but you have this uh, Gorsuch to say. I told you to go back and look at it a little more, and I did. So I wanted to follow up. I, I like to keep my promises, team. One of my one of my goals here in the hut, and it is exactly as I thought. That Gorsuch is like, look, I, I'm not saying that you can't have a statute that says anyone for any illegal can be prioritized for deportation based on whatever whatever you want, really, whatever the Congress thinks. There are they already can be deported. It just has to do with whether they are fast tracked for deportation uh, under existing statute. And Gorsuch was only was only telling everybody with his opinion here that you need to have clarity on what is and is not a crime of violence because there there will be other statutes you know or if you are arrested uh, with a firearm for example you know is, is, is it in the commission of a crime of violence or is it just simple possession it affects other areas of the law so clarity is necessary uh, so in this sense I like it because I hate vague law and this is a very important thing for you all to remember the essence of tyranny is not the enforcement, the ironclad enforcement of law for everyone. The essence of tyranny is uh, capricious law. It's law that is applied with favor to some and, uh, and not to others or vice versa. That's what's really terrifying when you don't know. And you're starting to see here, oh, you mean kind of like the way things work with Democrats whenever there's a national political discussion around a uh, criminal justice issue, around some kind of criminal investigation. Oh, like that. Yeah. yeah. You do not want the deep state class, right, the uh, elites within the DOJ and the and people say, oh, the DOJ, they're public servants. A lot of those guys, they're, they're in and out. They're working at big, uh, big law firms, making a ton of money. They come back to DOJ. They're very connected. You have to always think of the separation between the top of these places and the rank and file, right? 
there were there were there were a million miles of stuff between like Brennan, who was CIA director, and although he wasn't there when I was there, and like little Buck down here in a cubicle somewhere, doing his cubicle farmer stuff, you know, do, 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 uh, writing memos, spreading freedom, killing terrorists, that kind of stuff. So that's a that's I think a very important and, and you you'll notice that the and I talked to our friend Kim Strassel at the at the Journal about this yesterday. The first line of defense is always, they're attacking the institution. No, we're attacking the people that run these institutions. You know, there are separations between elites and the everyday in society. There are separations between the elites and the, and the rank and file in these different agencies and bureaucracies of the federal government. And when you have a clear propensity for those who decide what charges to bring, what kind of federal crimes will or will not be pursued, that have a, a political impact. Uh, you need to keep a very close eye on, on how that authority is being used and how the folks in charge are, are using it. So that's why I, I, I like clear laws. I do not like laws that can be interpreted one way or the other because it will be abused by the worst people. Hillary Clinton with the emails, clear law, and yet no charges. How does that happen? Oh, it's kind of strange, isn't it? Bit of a surprise. Or it's actually, to many of you, I'm sure, not a surprise at all. Uh, collusion. A Russia collusion investigation. What is the crime there? Hmm. Where's the violation of statute exactly? What, what are they even looking for? What is Mueller waking up every day saying, I need to find the following? Well, it's anything to use against Trump. But what's he supposed to be waking up every day and saying, I need to find and the following? Has no answer. Because collusion is not a crime. And as I have been telling you, and I don't think enough people say this, they should call it the Russia, they should say conspiracy. Looking for conspiracy with Russia. Conspiracy is a uh, is taking you know active steps and an affirmative plot to violate uh, federal laws, for example. More than one person planning to violate federal law in some way and working toward that end. But conspiracy is a specific thing. Collusion is whatever they say it is, and collusion can be a political crime. So this is where you see how the gray areas of the law get abused against Trump, against all of his people. This is how you get you know, all these guys that are getting nailed on process crimes left and right. So I hate vagueness in the law. And so Gorsuch, in this case, saying, look, we, we need to be very specific here about what is a crime of violence. I'm okay with that. I don't think that he's a sellout. I don't think that we should panic. <laughs> I don't think it's the end of, but Gorsuch, for those of you who are really not yet sold on the all the benefits of a Trump presidency. I don't know. There's a hand. There's certainly a handful of you, probably a few dozen listening. I have no idea. It'd be kind of fun if I could do some really accurate polling of what you all think of the Trump presidency so far. Maybe, maybe something we can work on for one day. Um, but then you get the part of this. So I, I said that there's some, some good and some bad here from the decision yesterday and, and what I'm looking at now. The bad side of it is that uh, once again, we have conservatives who are like, hey, I have principles, and the liberals win. And this isn't a big win for them. It's not. I, I, I don't see this as a big problem uh, because it shows us that the Congress needs to actually write laws with clarity and purpose. And in no area, I think, of the law are they more uh, derelict in their duty in many ways than on immigration. Although I could probably, t- if, if I thought long enough, I'm sure I'd come up with another area of the law. They're probably just as bad, if not worse. Uh, but immigration law is beset with complexity, and it really is set up to fail in a lot of ways. And they won't change it. 
even Democrats, I've always thought this was so telling, who pretend that they, well, depending on what period we're talking about, now they're just like, yeah, the illegals, illegals are the, the beating heart of America, are people that break the law to come into this country. That's pretty much the Democrat Party's mo- motto at this point. But, you know, d- depending on uh, the day and the time, uh, you will have sometimes the Democrats acting like they are more in line with the uh, law and order, but then you'll say to them, well, hold on a second, why don't you guys just pass it? When you were in the majority under the Obama administration, you had the House, the Senate, and the presidency, why not just pass laws that change the status of, uh, change our immigration system? Oh, that's right, because if they did, then they'd be on record and we would know. We would know how they really feel, We would, and the American people could take action based on that. There'd be no hiding it. They prefer that it be hidden. And this is another recurring theme that I see very troubling with our, our system of government right now, that you have all these different ways of hiding responsibility for the acts of the legislative branch that the members of the legislative branch love because they want to just go out there with a the narrative. They want to fundraise. You know, when it's uh, when the timing is right, they want to be all Tea Party all the time. When it's suiting them, they want to be, you know, going on CNN and be the Republican who's speaking truth to his fellow Republicans. Right. A lot of dishonest grandstanding from Republicans when it comes to what they really stand for at election time versus what they stand for the rest of the year. So I would uh, I'd like to see clarity here. Clarity on where they stand on budgetary issues, on the debt, on immigration, on any number of things. And it starts with clarity in the law. See how I brought that all full circle? I thought that was pretty nice. I, I like how I buttoned that one up. Uh, you know, But Gorsuch uh, wanted to follow that one after yesterday when I had more time to look into it uh, over the course of the night. Uh, we have more on the Southwest Airlines flight from yesterday. Was, woof, woof. Uh, you know, it's one of these things where I know all all of us can do this, right? When you're, uh, you know, there's a, there's a shark attack in, in Florida. You're like, I've been to Florida and it it has nothing to do with anything. But I, uh, thought about how I've taken that flight from LaGuardia airport, especially when I used to work at the blaze. It was a LaGuardia to, I think Dallas love field in, uh, in Texas. I've taken that flight so many times. I've probably taken that flight more than any other flight, uh, certainly over the last six or seven years. And just terrifying with the additional details, but but heroism on display as well. And I think we should uh, make sure we give credit where it's due on that. And so we'll talk more about that. Oh, I've got the follow-ups on this whole Starbucks thing. This is a big deal. I knew it was a big deal. That's why we talked. Notice how we led the show with it yesterday and today. All oh, Eric Holder's weighing in. All the big, big, big media coverage of this whole Starbucks situation. A little additional information to throw into the mix there and uh, much more to discuss. The social justice warriors see an opening, and they are going to run with it. Um, 844-900-2825 if you want to chat. Uh, 844-900-BUCK. I'm here live in Los Angeles on the West Coast. Having a great time. Hope you are too. And uh, we've got so much to discuss. Stay with me. There's no indication that Mueller's going to be fired. I don't think the president's going to do that. And just as a practical matter, even if we passed it, why would he sign it? Yeah, McConnell's got a point there. If I were if I were Trump and they they tried to, uh, the, first of all, they'd be exceeding their constitutional authority. The president has the right to file. Well, 
Now, keep in mind, people say, oh, he can't fire him. Only Roland Rosenstein can fire him. Well, whatever. The president can fire executive branch employees. And they might cause a constitutional crisis by trying to stop the president from doing those kinds of things. Uh, but also, if you're Trump, you're going to sign that bill? The, uh, the bill that suggests that you have to be constrained because you're not willing to let this process play out and you're going to throw a, a wrench into the gears? Come on. It's just complete and utter nonsense. But it's a talking point. It's a good one for Democrats to get to go on TV. Oh, we need to to protect Mueller. We need to protect him. Even if they fired Mueller, unless they shut down the investigation, somebody else would just take his place, right? So it's really shutting down the special counsel, which I I don't have as much of a problem with it as a lot of other people do because I don't think there ever should have been a special counsel in the first place. We gave Comey what he wanted, everyone. Do we think that was a smart move? This is what Comey wanted, exactly what he, he wanted the administration to be hounded and dragged into the mud by a special counsel, and that is what is going on. Maybe, maybe we should uh, rethink that whole process. Only seems fair to me, but uh, I'm a wild man with some crazy views. Bill in Newton, Massachusetts. Hey, Bill. Bill? Up. That's always fun. So sometimes we have like a bunch of calls lined up, and then we'll have a technical glitch, uh, technical glitch with the phones, and we are there right now. So those of you who are holding and calling, I apologize because we were we we're about to just rack and stack all of your calls. But in the meantime, I, I can't get right into it because uh, we are having some, as I said, some technical difficulties. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm really hoping that. Uh, Republicans get with the program here and stop allowing Democrats to run roughshod over them with all these legal, these legal angles that they're taking on things. Uh, I think it would be a much, uh, much better approach. And you got uh, the possibility also that Comey may get himself into some hot water here by running his mouth all the time publicly. We've heard so much about, oh, Trump with his tweets and everything else. Uh, here's what the former FBI assistant director Ron Hosko had to say about Comey going out there talking about all these things that are still very relevant to investigations. Play clip eight. Every FBI agent knows that uh, the, the ideal witness is the witness who's made one statement, sticks to that statement. There are not multiple iterations of it. And so there's the uh, belief that uh, every additional statement, uh, the relevant statement here, uh, creates additional risk if if Jim Comey is to be a witness in the future by Bob Mueller or somebody else. Mm. You mean that Comey may find himself in one of his favorite favorite mechanisms out there, the uh, the perjury trap. That wouldn't that wouldn't that be some ironic and sweet revenge at the same time? Um, and also some folks in the FBI. Remember how we used to hear all the time about how oh. When Comey was fired, the whole FBI was up in arms. Ah, I never bought that. First of all, most of them don't care. It's like when I was the CIA, they, you know, if they canned a CIA director, I didn't. I wouldn't care. Yeah, whatever. Oh, no, they've lost the, the, the esprit de corps because, yeah, please. Are the checks clearing? Do I still have my job? Am I doing my part of the mission? Great. I'll, I'll move on. I'll, I'll live without that director. Thank you very much. Uh, but here's what Hosko had to say about uh, what, just what he thinks of Comey right now. Play nine. A lot of the retiree, FBI retired workforce and the current workforce 
you know, has great concern about the, you know, what is expected to be the, the dignity of the person, of the office that they occupy, the FBI director. And, and now it is, you know, kind of devolving into entertainment. And, and the notion of the FBI is entertainment now on the back end of that a, a year later is, I think, very concerning to men and women who work so hard to preserve the FBI as an independent organization. Yeah, it is. I agree with Hasco on that one. What's going on at Starbucks? We got that coming up. If you're hiring, you already know that the most important asset you have are the people that work for you and that you will bring in. But how do you do it? What's the most effective way? No matter what size your business, no matter what industry you are in, ZipRecruiter.com is simply the best way for you to go. You can post your job on there, and ZipRecruiter has a smart matching technology that will make sure that you know you are getting the best applicants possible in the shortest amount of time. The user interface is incredibly straightforward. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. You can try it totally free. Listeners of the show, you can just try it for yourself. Post a job on there and see what happens. 80% of employers get a quality candidate from ZipRecruiter in just one day. And this is a person that would do a great job. The biggest issue you may have with ZipRecruiter is you're going to have so many great candidates uh, that come into your inbox, all from ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. Go, Go check it out. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Starbucks in the crosshairs of the social justice warriors. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. I knew the story was going to only get bigger. Had a feeling. And uh, sure enough, here we are. A lot of uh, commentary out there today about what Starbucks should do, how it should tackle the issues of systemic racism and all this stuff. Uh, yesterday, I walked you through, and, and I got some of your messages. You said, Buck, we, we got all the details, okay? You got to move through those details quickly next time. I uh, walk you through the two specific incidents, one in Los Angeles that occurred back in January, another one th- and that was publicized just recently, and then another one uh, from this past weekend in Philadelphia, uh, both involving black men who believed that they were, in one, well, two black men in one location, a black man in another location, that they were... Uh, unfairly treated because of their race, that they were uh, victims of racism. And yesterday I spent a lot of time with you talking about how uh, I think that we never really get to ask some questions about these incidents. And I would say I can't speak to Starbucks specifically, but I do know that from what goes on on college campuses, there are a shockingly high number of hoax hate crimes on campuses. Oh, someone found a, you know, a noose hanging over a door. Oh, the student who found the noose who complained about it initially was the one who put it there. Oh, but that person was just raising awareness, so that person's still a hero. Thanks for tackling racism by making up an incident of racism. That's a common thing. Happens at a lot of schools. Happens at a lot of places across the country. It's happened many times. If you look up college campus hate crime hoax or you know, racism hoax, you'll see some stories that really are, are pretty mind-blowing. And the reaction is always the same, too. It's not, oh, my gosh, why did you create such a, a disturbance on campus with an incident that you manufactured? And no one, also no one ever asks the question, if, in fact, 
you are talking about racism that is so systemic and so widespread, why would you have to manufacture an incident of it? Why not just pick one of the incidents that must be happening all the time, right? They're everywhere. There's so much racism around you, especially on a college campus um, where if there, were, if there were any racism that went unpunished, uh, I think people would be generally, any overt racism at least, it would be uh, quite surprising. Uh, but this has turned into a cause now for the left. So, so yesterday was more of the what were the specifics of the incidents? Were the men, uh, in, were the were the black men in question here um, reading the situation properly as to the other people in the store? Was the store manager just reacting to their attitude, or was it, you know there's a lot of that? And you're you're not supposed to really ask those questions. It's someone said there's racism. We all have to start saying. That's terrible. What are we going to do about it? And if you say, well, hold on a second. I'm, or, was this racism? Racism's bad, but was this racism? Then, oh, are you saying racism is not real? No, I'm not saying that. I just don't know. If, I don't know if this was racism. If it is, it's bad. And we should all, and we are all on the same page about this, right? Racism is bad. But was it racism? Oh, how dare you? Ask the question. Okay, so yesterday we started asking some of the questions and looking at the the ins and outs of whether or not these were really situations of racism. Okay. Now I just want to talk about the other component of this, which is the racial grievance apparatus that kicks in whenever something like this happens, right? And, and you know, media and, uh, you know, different... Uh, NGOs or NP, uh, you know, non political or whatever they are, all activist organizations, whatever, you know, 501c things, all that stuff. All of a sudden, there's a lot of pressure. There are pressure campaigns that are brought to bear over this stuff. Um, there are pressure campaigns to try and shut down for periods of time, try to shut down people, their businesses, get people fired, right? And it all jumps in. And I feel like so rarely does anyone ever get to ask this question, which is, well, even if one person, let's just say that, let's say that the case in Philadelphia, where two black men were asked to leave a Starbucks, um, they were told that they couldn't stay if they didn't buy something, they didn't leave, the police came, they wouldn't leave after the police asked them to leave, they were arrested. Let's assume that on the part of the store owner, not the cops, I'm not, I'm not having any of that. Cops get called to a private establishment. They're told that people are not, you know, no, no longer welcome there. And the cops ask them to leave. They don't leave. You get arrested. That's just it, right? This is like saying, well, you know, I, I, I don't really think I was speeding. So when the cop tried to pull me over, I was like, no, I'm not going to get pulled over today. So I just kept going. That, that, that can't be the way that this goes, okay? But on the store manager from the Starbucks, let's assume that it was racism. Let's assume that store manager, and that's not I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying for the purposes of our discussion right now, let's assume it was racial animus. You know, I'm because of the these two men's, uh, because of their skin color, I'm going to treat them differently because of whatever. That's the way that that store manager approached the situation. Is that now the fault of Starbucks? I'm not saying Starbucks couldn't be liable for this. Of course, you could be liable for employees. But if, as a structure, as an organization... Is it really Starbucks's fault, which has 8,000 franchises and 175,000 employees? Notice how one of the big fights that you'll see in, in, all, in lots of politically loaded media stories out there, whether it's talking about terrorism cases, talking about racism, talking about you know, sexism, any number of things, 
is when is a an individual specific incident representative of the whole, and when is it a an aberrant event? When is it something that just kind of happened and doesn't no meaning here, no, nothing to see here, right? You, know, you uh, have this with you know, DOJ, for example, all those text messages, you know, with Strzok and Page, and yeah, you know, we, we got to get an insurance policy on Trump. No, that was just. That wasn't indicative of more widespread thinking in the FBI at the time to try and uh, sandbag Trump, right? That that wasn't no, 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 not not indicative of the whole, you know, Comey's actions at the FBI, you know. But in here with Starbucks, two employees theoretically uh, might be held responsible for uh tainting the image of this entire massive conglomerate this multinational conglomerate known as Starbucks you had the ceo feel like he had to do the personal uh the, the personal shame tour here uh play clip 13 i'm embarrassed ashamed i think what occurred was reprehensible at every single level I think I take it very personally, as everyone in our company does, and we're committed to making it right. The announcement we made yesterday about closing our stores, 8,000 stores closed, to do significant training with our people is just the beginning of what we will do to transform the way we do, do business and educate our people on unconscious and it will cost- Significant training. Can we, can we unpack that for a second? If somebody has a problem with somebody else because of their skin color, uh, do you do you really think that they are going to change that attitude based upon a one-day, massive, slapped-together corporate training module? I'm just trying to be realistic here. Now, you can argue, and it's a fine argument to make. I get it. Buck doesn't matter. We have to try. We have to push back against systemic racism. I get that. But for being realistic here, Seems to me like this is not a particularly uh, effective, a much more effective means of dealing with the problem would be to establish a baseline policy of zero tolerance for any racial discrimination and to take very seriously any allegations of such discrimination, to investigate them and to take appropriate action as a company against any individuals found to have violated those policies, right? Treat people like adults, let them be responsible for their actions, Expect that everyone treats the people that come into the, a Starbucks store, every employee treats everyone who comes into a Starbucks as you know, a person, a, a customer uh, worthy of attention and a person worthy of respect. That's it. Right? It's actually not that complicated. Uh, but this is now turning into something bigger even than just Starbucks. As I said, it would. This is now becoming a cause. This is a teachable moment for the nation. This is, you know, MSNBC could have a teach in this weekend. Uh, on TV. Wouldn't surprise me at all. And you have none other than uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder talking about this one. Play clip 15, please. They understand that what happened in Philadelphia uh, was inappropriate, was wrong, and they want to try to get things right. And I think that what they're going to try to do is close the stores, go through some unconscious bias training, uh, put together a panel of which I am a member to help advise them in, in that regard, and hopefully not have a repeat of that. But what I think is that we should not, as a society, as a country, feel comfort in the notion that this is a Starbucks problem. This is a problem that is much larger. This right. is a problem that our nation has to deal with. Ah, see, this is really about systemic racism everywhere across the country. Isn't it amazing how it gets 
transformed so quickly into that. So two incidents months apart involving two employees from a huge company serving literally millions of customers every day. And they, uh, or maybe every week or month or whatever, but a lot of people, a lot of people go to Starbucks. Occasionally I have no choice and I end up going to Starbucks too. Uh, that's a reflection. It's supposed to be a reflection of racism in this country now, and therefore we there needs to be a mobilization and discussions about this and all the rest of it. Oh, and, and there also uh, was, there was this guy who, uh, people, look, you know, I, I had producer Mike look into this a little bit, and we don't know who this individual is. This is just a clip that's been shared out there a bunch from a Starbucks. Clearly, we know that this is somebody who went into a Starbucks and did this. Uh, this guy may be just looking for attention, not really clear what's going on here. But uh, this also happened. You had a man in Starbucks demanding free coffee. And the Starbucks barista uh, handed it over. Play 12. I heard you guys don't like black people, so I wanted to get my Starbucks reparations voucher. Is that a real thing? I mean, I'll give it to you. I, yeah, I saw that on my Twitter last night. I was like, Yeah, I need, I need a free coffee. I'll give you a free coffee. That's what I'm talking about. This is justice. This is justice. This is what I'm talking about. Now, this could be a, you know, this could be a setup. I, you know, I, I can't tell you the back story with this guy. I do know. And this is what made me think that maybe this is really this guy just went in and demanded free coffee because Starbucks Starbucks is now racist. You see, you see how quickly that happened. Two incidents, maybe some racial bias involved. Kind of still looking at them. Oh no, Starbucks is racist. Actually, the whole country is racist. That's what this tells us. Whoa, three hundred twenty million people in this country. Two Starbucks managers now get to be magnified in this way to somehow be representative of all the rest of us and the problems we have and the racial issues that are at play? That seems a bit much, doesn't it? Seems like uh, quite a stretch to me. Uh, But there are people that are threatening now that there should be a boycott of Starbucks. And there have been activists going into random Starbucks stores yelling at employees in there. There was the photo of the guy with the bullhorn yelling at the Starbucks employee. That got a lot of play. Recently, people turned it into a, some pretty funny memes, actually. But what does a random Starbucks store have to do with this? There's not a racist policy in play. Starbucks doesn't have, and, and this is the, the way that this story has been, uh, the way that it has captured the media's attention, it's almost as though they've uncovered that Starbucks has a policy of only allowing white people to, without purchasing something, get access to the bathroom in a Starbucks. Right, that, that it's an official policy that needs to be addressed, and that I mean, sh- the CEO Schultz is apo- is out there apologizing for the conduct of two employees that that you know he has nothing to do with, that weren't responding to any actual company policy, and I just think it's uh, it's really from his point, it's it's a PR. Maybe you could say it's a PR necessity, but it's all for show. He's not responsible for what happened in these stores in any meaningful sense. And people that are saying that Starbucks should be punished for that. And look, I'm not a big Starbucks fan, right? Dunkin' Donuts all the way. But I'm not a big Starbucks fan. I just feel like we need to uh, understand that when these incidents happen like this and there's such a, a rush to judgment and also calls to action along with that judgment that can have real consequences for people. 
You know, it, it, maybe it's going to affect some of the, the business for some of these stores. You know, you, you just don't know where this ends up going. I, I think there was some, uh, producer Mike, was, there was some, boy, was there boycott Starbucks stuff trending last night on Twitter? I know that people have been talking about it. Uh, I know that it's been getting some play on, on social media. Yep, first thing, <laughs> uh, as I'm talking to Mike, I, I just checked in on Twitter. I typed in B-O, and the first thing that came up, hashtag boycott Starbucks. What the heck are they going to boycott Starbucks for? For what? They're, they're, they're doing more than enough. The people that were involved are already gone from the company. They're doing this retraining session. They're going to shut down 8,000 franchises because of what two out of 175,000 employees did. Allegedly, I would note. It's alleged. Not proven in a court of law. Not clear on the facts here. Uh, but you see the, the racial grievance machinery once it gets going, once there is an incident like this. Everything, everyone just jumps in, jumps into it, and and all of a sudden the facts get pushed aside, and it's about raising awareness, tackling systemic racism, and political mobilization too. Uh, this they'll they'll be looking for more incidents like this to create a kind of a snowball effect going into the midterms because this becomes an issue that the Democrats know that it's a a way to get their base fired up. Uh, people of all different ethnic backgrounds who are Democrats like to think that they are warriors on the front lines combating racism. And by racism, they generally mean Republicans. <laughs> that's that's generally what they think when they're saying they're battling racism. Uh, so this, this Starbucks thing is, is not going away anytime soon. And it's uh, been fascinating to watch the way that it has played out in the media. It's exactly as I could have scripted the whole thing out. Uh, 844-900-2825. You want to chat? 844-900-BUCK. We have so much more. Stay with me. All right, so let's say you've figured out who it is that you want to hire or who that next big client is that you're going to take on for your business. How do you know that you're getting what you think you are? How do you know that the person, that their documentation, that all of the facts of the case line up? Global Verification Network can make sure you know. They're the only dual-certified, veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company. They are federally certified as a veteran-owned small business and are headquartered right here in Chicago. Their risk mitigation experts work with startups all the way up to Fortune 100 countries. No data or client information is ever sent offshore, and their employees are all right here in the U.S. Check them out for yourself. Go to mygvn.com. That's mygvn.com or call 877-695-1179-877-695-1179. Well, our buddy Bill's been holding for quite a while. We got him back on the line here and uh, we wanted to give him a chance to talk to us about immigration Bill up in Newton, Mass. Round two. Go. Hello? <laughs> Guys, do we not have him again? <laughs> Come on. Oh, we've got a phone issue. That's for sure. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in L.A. here. My team in New York is letting me know that. Uh, as my, Bill, we tried, man. And we got other people calling. You know, we wanted to give you first crack at it. We, we thought we had uh, addressed the, the issue of the phones, and yet here we are. Um, without phone connectivity, all of you. But that's a great time for me to tell you all. If you got thoughts on the show, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. I can look at it while I'm on air, well, in the breaks. It would be bad if I started reading as I was trying to talk to you. 
but you have a way to reach out and say hi anytime you like. And it is, in fact, me who is responding. Uh, I saw this poll made me interested uh, because, in part, I'm here in California. And it's from the Daily Democrat. And it looks like this was from Berkeley's Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. Uh, Haas, I think, is the B school, business school at Berkeley. And this poll said that half of Californians are okay with the travel ban. But I thought the travel ban was the worst thing in the history of bad things ever, right? I thought the travel ban was so, so terrible, and it would never be okay with anyone. Well, if it's not so terrible for folks in California, what does that mean about the rest of the country? Half? It's actually a pretty high number when you think about it. And uh, then there was also, along with this, a lot of folks want increased deportations. Huh. Isn't that interesting? 24% of the survey's participants said it's very important for the U.S. to increase deportations. 35% said somewhat important. More deportations? This is California. I thought they didn't want to deport anybody. Uh, maybe It's almost like the media narrative on some of this stuff may not, in fact, be entirely true. So keep that one in your mind, my friends. I think we'll talk about this uh, Southwest flight. Got some more on that. I uh, want to share that with you, so stay right there with me. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. I meant to mention this before, but it seems uh, worth just revisiting for a second. Uh, And if we have the clip, guys, let me know, because I was of the impression that uh, we might, uh, of Eric Holder letting it slip that that he thinks that uh, he might run for president. Oh, we have it? Oh, let's hear it. Is Eric Holder running for president? Yeah, I'm thinking about it, but I've not made any determinations. I'm focusing on the work I'm doing with the National Democratic Redistricting Committee and trying to deal with gerrymandering. I'm thinking about it. Um, wow. I got to tell you, I would, not have, I would not have ever guessed before hearing that that uh, he would publicly proclaim that he would ever consider running for president. Uh, that is something of a shock. To me, uh, just because, you know, uh, Holder doesn't really strike me as, I don't think he strikes any, I don't think he strikes anyone as a charismatic or charming or uh, particularly compelling fellow. What was Eric Holder, uh, what, what was his greatest use for the Obama administration? His loyalty to Obama and to the administration above all else, including the law and his willingness to protect at all costs President Obama and his legacy. Um, I would love to see this, though, a, a a new field of candidates for 2020 for the Democrats involving uh, someone like Hillary. I'm back! And Holder, and who else could they? Uh, I mean, I think Biden still thinks he's going to make a go of it. Bernie? I don't know, Bernie. You know, you had a good run this last time around, maybe a little too much. But if they want to go for it again and put those candidates forward, I say, I say, great. Uh, let's see the Democrats mobilize around uh, Holder, Hillary, Bernie. You know, I, I have always thought that Bernie, any guy who spends as much time as he does talking about inequality, who has only worked for government his whole life and owns three houses somehow, is he's got some he's got some issues when you really get down to it. Um, 
but at least he was able to capture some of the uh, excitement of the left-wing base. And, yeah, I, I think his heart's in the right place on some stuff. It's just the numbers aren't there. On the, and his economic understanding is not there. So uh, those are just some, some quick – I wanted to get in that uh, Holder clip. I know we mentioned before, and uh, sure enough, he's – yep, he's thinking he, – oh, my gosh. I didn't even think about this till now. I, it didn't even occur to me till now. You know what we should really do? And this would be a fantastic disinformation operation. We got to get Comey to run. O-M-G. Comey, would, it would be fantastic. Just walking that, that pair of human stilts strutting around there and talking about how much he just wants to serve his country. He's just all about public service. Just... Just a believer in doing all that he can to make the lives of everyday Americans a little brighter. Uh, it'd be great. I think if some, I think if the right people put the idea out there for him, he just wouldn't be able to help himself. He's already FBI director. Maybe he wanted to be attorney general, but a guy like Comey, with his uh, near delusional level of uh, self-regard and and uh, admiration for himself, his ego of unbelievable. Uh, capacity, and I think that the presidency is actually much more of a possibility for him, in his mind, than any other rational human being would. That would be great. We got to get that going here. Um, I think Democrats would realize what a disaster that is and would do everything in their power to, to prevent it from happening. Um, but there is also the very real chance that uh, maybe Comey would decide that he's he's the man for the job. He certainly thinks certainly thinks he's the man for the job of taking down the Trump administration so we can convince him to make a run of it as the uh, Democrat presidential candidate. That would be a lot of fun. All right. This is a total, uh, total gear switch here, but uh, we had some audio from, uh, we, we didn't play it yesterday, uh, but I wanted to, of the pilot from the Southwest Airlines flight. And uh, it, it's, it's astonishing. Um you know, what ended up happening there. Do we, uh, let's uh, play it for a second. I understand your emergency. Let me know when you want to go in. Yeah, we have a part of the aircraft missing, so we're going to need to slow down a bit. Southwest 1380, speed is your discretion. Maintain uh, at any altitude above 3,000 feet. Southwest 1380, you'd like to turn, start turning inbound. Southwest 1380, turn, uh, just start turning southbound there. There's a Southwest 737 on a four-mile final. We'll be turning southbound. Start looking for the airport. It's off to your right and slightly behind you there. And uh, altitude is your discretion. Use caution for the uh, downtown areas. Okay, could you have the uh, medical meet us there on the runway as well? We've got uh, injured passengers. Injured passengers, okay. And are you, is your airplane physically on fire? No, it's not on fire, but part of it's missing. They said there was a hole and uh Someone went out. Part of it's missing. There's a hole, and someone went out at 30,000 feet. That was Tammy Jo Schultz, who was the pilot, a female pilot, who landed uh, that crippled Southwest Airlines plane. Uh, someone was killed, very tragic. First airline fatality in the U.S. in a number of years. Um, I believe killed by shrapnel. The person that almost got pulled out of the window uh, when the when there was that uh, what break in the well break in the outer body of the plane that allows you know with the compression in the air and you get sucked out of the plane. We've all seen it happen in movies. 
Um, they were able to keep her in the plane, but tremendous poise from Tammy Joel uh, Schultz, who people are saying, and I, I think rightfully so, is kind of the female Sully. Uh, remember Sully who landed that plane? I, I always remember that day. I didn't see the movie. Maybe I should see that Tom Hanks movie. I've seen parts of it here and there when it was on uh, HBO. But anyway, uh, Tammy Joel Schultz was a pilot in the Navy. Uh, she was a combat pilot. What is she flying? Uh, F-16s, I believe. Um, I want to make sure I get that right because if I get the plane wrong, if I get the plane wrong, I know a lot of you are going to yell at me, which I understand. Um, but anyway, she was a fighter pilot in the Navy, so there was there was that. Uh, she had considerable training for just uh, any kind of eventuality in, in the sky, and it was a it was a real. You know, that's a harrowing situation that she was handling up there. When you have, first of all, somebody's already been somebody's already been killed, and um, you've got other seven people injured by the shrapnel on that, and you got a plane that has an exploded jet engine. To have the poise to have that kind of discussion, I just wanted to play that audio for you because I I thought it was pretty remarkable. Um, I'd like to think that under pressure, I could be pretty a pretty uh, reliable guy but well i'm terrible at planes i do not like flying in planes and so i'm don't worry i'm never going to try to be a commercial airline pilot or anything like that i want i've got friends who fly their own planes and as much as i appreciate when they ask me to go up with them in one of those three or four person you know prop planes it's just it's not not for me and i did enough of my uh, flying around the military planes back in my in my government days so uh, i've had enough of that um, but this is a story of heroism, too, uh, from Tammy Jo Schultz. Yeah, she was a lieutenant in the United States Navy. Uh, she was a fighter pilot. F-A- I'm sorry, F-A-8. I knew I had that one wrong. F-A-18. That's what they fly in the Navy. Come on, Buck. Get it together. Um, but uh, she, she landed the plane very calmly. And uh, I am driving tomorrow to San Diego, but I have to tell you, I'll be flying back to the East Coast, and I can't help but just have a moment of pause. You know, whenever whenever something like this happens, it it stays with you for a few days. That a, a flight could uh, have that situation. I don't know. It's just it's just utterly terrifying. It's like something out of a horror movie. Uh, play, the engine explodes, shrapnel goes through, hits seven people, kills someone. Someone almost gets sucked out of the plane. I think there's also audio out there, although we couldn't find it today, from uh, some social media accounts of people who took video of the. Uh, airline attendants once they the oxygen masks were deployed so those are there for a reason um, and they were trying to get everyone to breathe and to calm down as they did an emergency landing but uh, wanted to give a, a shout out here to uh, Tammy Joe Schultz one of the very first women to fly uh, Navy fighter aircraft and uh, now has, has certainly made uh, Southwest Airlines proud and made all of us proud so uh, a hat tip to her. I'm going to uh, update you on the situation at the border in a few minutes. That whole caravan thing, I don't have a lot for you on it, but I have an update on it. So I want to discuss that with you. And then if you can stay with me to the end of the show today, I've got, it's a, it's a short story. It's something I found online that I think will, um, will really stay with you. And it might be the thing you remember the most about today's show. It might be the thing you remember most about any story you hear this week. Stay with me. We'll be right back. Now, I said this right away, 
when we were told that the caravan on the way to the uh, U.S.-Mexico border had stopped. I said, uh, uh-uh. I, I, don't, I, I don't believe it. I, I think that, sure, the, the Mexican government is going to say, all right, guys, well, you should probably step aside and, and you should uh, not be so open and overt about your desire, not just to cross in the U.S., but to turn yourself over, this caravan of Central Americans, turn themselves over to Border Patrol, knowing that current law is going to allow them to claim asylum and they're basically going to get to stay. Very unlikely they're going to have to leave. Very likely they are going to get to stay in the U.S. I, I think a lot of you will know this. I said this. I said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, guys, but they are they're going to come another way. They're just not going to do it as part of this big caravan. And uh, sure enough, from Mark Ikorian at the uh, Center for Immigration Studies, I saw this earlier today. He put out that at least 600 illegal aliens, according to, I believe he cites a Mexican news source here, at least 600 illegal aliens who were part of the recent caravan are continuing stealthily, stealthily in Mexico uh, toward the U.S. border. Uh, you're still going to, I think you're going to have this this showdown. Um, it, it may not be all in one group, but you're going to have a lot of people. You're going to start to see the first reports coming out that there will be a series of people who have turned themselves over in the border. And un- we're going to read about unaccompanied minors in the pro-amnesty and pro-legal alien news outlets, which is most of the major ones, you're going to see a lot of stuff about how this is all just unaccompanied minors and people that are fleeing tyranny and violence in Central America or whatever. Uh, Some others will start to say, well, hold on a second. These aren't actually unaccompanied minors. They're showing up with adults. We can't check their ages. And they are literally showing up, turning themselves over to Border Patrol and going to be resettled in parts of the country where they will be able to stay indefinitely. And I wonder what the next move is going to be for the Trump administration on the issue of immigration, because it's so central to a lot of the messaging. And now that we've seen California via Governor Brown reject any assistance to the federal government's, uh, the federal government's role in securing our border, it couldn't be any more clear that, that they're the open borders party. I mean, the Democrats have become the the quasi-open borders party, I guess you could say. Uh, although, to no, the, the notion of open borders, I've told you before, there's no such thing. There's no country that has open borders. There are countries that don't secure their borders. But I am not aware of any country on planet Earth where you can just show, that actually has a state and a functioning government, uh, where you can just show up when you want to and leave when you want to and don't have to check in or say hi to anybody. So when they say, well, it's not open borders, we've got all this militarized apparatus on the border. Well, we're close to open. We're as close to open borders as anybody else out there, really, for a major country, for sure. Other countries, including European states that like to look at us and and thumb their nose at us because they say, oh, you know, you're not being nearly as as welcoming as you should be. They don't allow people to just come into their countries. And when they do, like, Angela Merkel, hello, guten tag. Yeah, Merkel. She wears the pantsuits with such pizzazz. Uh, They have problems. They have blowback from that. 
Actually, I didn't get a chance to get into it today, but there's some there's some stuff out there about how uh, Sweden, I think it was in Politico Europe, the uh, European edition of Politico, about how Swedish authorities have reached the just straight-up denial phase of, one, do you have a major increase in violent crimes, gang-related crimes, grenade attacks? Uh, the Swedish authorities are kind of just, you know, you know, they don't, they're not, they're not uh, making a lot of, neither a lot of sense nor a lot of speaking a lot of truth on this. Uh, but also, when people say, "Well, okay, we we do, we know there's a crime wave. We know that there's been grenade attacks on police stations. We know that uh, Malmo, Sweden, for example, has had a a huge spike in really dangerous activity and stuff going on." Um, what do we? What do you attribute that to? Uh, the Swedes also pretend like there's just, they can't figure it out. And really the way the question should be broken down is, okay, so in in your heaviest immigrant areas uh, of, of predominantly Middle Eastern and South Asian immigrants, you've had a huge spike in crime. It's just happened in recent years. You've just had influxes of people from communities in South Asia and the Middle East in the last five to ten years. And you can't draw any correlation whatsoever. Not causation, but you can't draw any correlation between that. You can't even hazard a guess at why it is that you're seeing these spikes in crime and what you can do to combat it. And You know, know, they don't know. They don't want to talk about it. The immigration issue is what launched Donald Trump to the front of the Republican pack in the primary. You remember it, I remember it. And what happened in Europe was really seen as a harbinger of things to come here. More so Germany, but to some degree Sweden as well, uh, that if you don't have borders, you don't have a country. If you don't have security when it comes to your borders, you are at risk and you will be taken advantage of at a minimum, if not attacked outright. And this is just a conversation that I think the administration needs to focus on even more. I know Trump said that uh, in a tweet, what was it, yesterday, that there's a revolution coming in California because of those that are opposing sanctuary city jurisdiction California may be, may be too far gone to save, you know, and I'm, I'm here out in L.A. right now, and uh, I, I've been talking to a lot of folks about what they think the political scene is going to be here uh, going forward, what it's going to be like, and have things gone so far afield, have there been so many problems here that, uh, that they're going to be switching things around, and nope, I, I think it's going to double down on progressivism. More paper bags that have the milk go right through the bottom when you try to leave the store. That's California's answer. And uh, more environmental regulations that will kill businesses. Um, Anyway, I want to talk about uh, North Korea and Pompeo and Pompeo's upcoming Senate vote uh, in just a few minutes. So stay right there. We've had talks at the highest level. Well, let's leave it a little bit short of that. But we have had talks at the highest level. And it's going very well, but we'll see what happens. I believe that there's a very real chance that the Trump policy of firmness is leading Kim Jong-un to decide that he actually wants a deal. I think that would be remarkably historic. And I think that uh, having a willingness to meet with him going through this process uh, really opens up possibilities that are very important. Welcome to Hour 3 of the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, So as you know, uh, as you know, um, the president has taken the step of trying to shake things up with regard to the nuclear stalemate that we have with North Korea. And 
the biggest news of of the week on this is that uh, you have the well the CIA director Mike Pompeo. We're also talking about where he stands with the Senate coming up here in just a few minutes. But Pompeo met with North Korean leader Kim Jong Un over Easter weekend, according to the Washington Post, confirmed by the president himself. So uh, that is that is important. That is uh, unusual, and it seems that they're trying to continue to move the ball downfield on getting a meeting between the president of the United States and the leader of this uh, totalitarian, uh, hyper-military, uh, hyper-militant, uh, well, gosh, so many different ways to describe it. People call it the hermit kingdom, but North Korea is going to be sending, it seems, Kim Jong-un to sit down across from Trump. That looks like it will, in fact, happen. And the meeting went smoothly, we're told, and a good relationship uh, has been formed between Mike Pompeo and Kim Jong-un. And you had Trump, who has acknowledged this, uh, tweeting out that uh, the meeting went very smoothly and a good relationship was formed. Details of the summit are being worked out now. Denuclearization will be a great thing for the world, but also for North Korea. Uh, if we can get there, and I've been I've been consistent on this. I've been saying this to you for a while. If we get to a place where the president of the United States even puts in motion a credible process to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula, which really just means to take nukes off the table for North Korea, right? South Korea is not a nuclear power. It will be the biggest diplomatic and national security coup in the post 9-11 era. Because uh, right now we are on a an unsustainable trajectory. Kind of reminds me of our debt situation, but we'll talk about the debt situation another time. Now, we are on an unsustainable trajectory. They are going to get to a point where they feel that they can, uh, if not blackmail us with their nuclear weapons program, the North Koreans will be in a position to threaten regional allies of ours uh, and engage in even more aggressive behavior that's not a full-scale invasion or nuclear strike knowing that they're always going to have that protection of uh, there will not be any regime change, there will not be any outside military intervention. And that will clearly embolden the regime of Kim Jong-un. Now, oh, and, and there will be, along with all that, a massive increase, I would guess, in cyber attacks, in cyber theft, all kinds of uh, illicit and criminal activity that allow the North Koreans to make money to build up their hard currency reserves and just cause even more problems for us. So, and you add proliferation onto this, that the North Koreans not only themselves would have this capability, but would also very likely be sharing it uh, with bad actors around the world. Uh, certainly with, we'd be concerned about their sharing it with Iran. I think that would the, the number one proliferation target for North Korea that we would have to be looking at and also perhaps the Assad regime in uh, in Syria and you know think of a really nasty country and there's a chance that you could see the North Koreans giving them missile and or nuclear technology that we don't want them to have um, oh speaking of really nasty regimes you know the situation in Cuba I haven't really talked about it today uh, haven't spent time on it you know it's it's a change. And I know I'm switching gears here for a moment from from North Korea. It's a change in leadership. Diaz-Canal uh, is now going to be 
the man who is in charge of the Cuban revolution, the Cuban Communist Party in the post-Castro era. Uh, but it's remarkable in this day and age that you could have this prison camp totalitarian island 90 miles from the coast of Florida. It really is. It's hard to fathom how they have held on so long. And I'd like to think that it's just a matter of time, but it might be quite a long time before there's actual freedom in, in Cuba, right? Uh, before Cuba Libre becomes a real thing. Um, that's my, uh, that's my sense of that. I, I just thinking about rogue regimes for a moment here. They outlast all, all the critics' uh, expectations for how long they'll be around. Whether we're talking about North Korea, or t- look at Syria with Assad. It is very tough to oust a regime that has no ethics or morals or scruples to protect and has established a, a pattern of using force in any context it wants, whenever it wants, however it wants to stay in power. Certainly the case with North Korea. I mean, North Korea is probably the apex of that pyramid of totalitarian states today in terms of how hardline it is, and, and it's the least free country in the world. Um, but Trump may be changing that. I'm curious to see what Trump policy vis-a-vis Cuba will be going forward. But in the meantime, Trump is certainly opening up the possibility of a, a really uh, radical shift from what we have seen in uh, the previous administrations that had a north a, a nuclear North Korea to contend with, but felt that there was just not an opening. Don't sit down and talk to them. He's a bad guy. Don't talk to Kim Jong Un. Uh, it'll give him. Or in, in previous administrations, it was Kim Jong Il. Uh, we'll see. It's uh, going to be quite a roll of the dice in the Trump administration, and it's also, I would note, a very uh, effective way of putting pressure on China. Right now we think of, oh, we'll put pressure on North Korea via China. And I've been saying this for quite a while, and I know a lot of folks have caught on and they agree, or they agreed and have agreed all along with me. The Chinese just don't have the same interest in North Korea that we do. That's just a fact. They're just not nearly as interested in shutting down um, North Korea's belligerence as we are. You know, they, they don't want North Korea to be such a problem that the international community will really go after China to effect change there. Uh, so they'll they'll push it back inside the lines a little bit. But they do not want they do not want a unified Korean peninsula under a pro-U.S. democratic regime. That's uh, essentially and effectively a, a part of the capitalist developed world. They don't want that. That is uh, that is a big no-no for China. So if we are able to get the North Koreans through Trump's summit, which I, I got to tell you, I you know Trump can pull off some incredible surprises, as we know. Are the odds against him getting what he wants? Yes, absolutely. It's going to be very high stakes, very difficult negotiation. Do I think it's possible? Sure. If he gets there with with the North Koreans, it will be a game changer for U.S. relations with China too. It's not just North Korea that this will be affecting um, because they will no longer have the ability to use North Korea as a faucet to turn on and off, or at least their pressure to turn on and off uh, as they see fit in order to get us to give concessions on other things and to back off. Uh, we got director, CI Director Pompeo up for the Secretary of State job. 
And I had thought that even Democrats couldn't mess this thing up. Some of them look like they want to. Uh, some look like look like they're willing to. So I wanted to uh, address that with you. Uh, I will answer the question of how petty are Democrats willing to be on Pompeo? That's coming up in just a few minutes. I will oppose that nomination. I believe that Director Pompeo has shown a disdain for diplomacy, putting military action at a higher priority. He has devalued religious tolerance and women's reproductive rights and health care, not only in this country, but around the world. I think he sets a poor example in terms of American values. So I will strongly oppose his nomination. And I think it will go to the floor if it does with an unfavorable vote from the Committee on Foreign Relations. I mean, you got to be kidding me, folks. Here we are with the most recent CIA director. Guy's got an impeccable resume. This is uh, Mike Pompeo. And he was he was uh, supported for the role of CIA director a year ago from the same Senate that is now supposed to give its uh, advice and consent for his accession to the role of secretary of state, put him through to be the CIA director. Pretty big job, don't you think? I think that's a big one. Really matters. Who's in that role? It can matter a whole lot to administration and to our national security. So they, they trusted him. They were cool with him being the CIA director, but now they're making noise about not supporting him for the role of Secretary of State. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. You had Senator Jean Shaheen, uh, who is also saying she will not support Pompeo. And look, if, if he doesn't get a couple Democrats to go along here, he's actually not going to get through. He's not going to get through a a floor vote and that's happened as i believe i told you when the initial pompeo hearings were televised nine times in history and never for the role of secretary of state so here's what shaheen's office have put has put out after careful consideration i cannot support director mike pompeo's nomination to serve as secretary of state i appreciate his willingness to serve and his dedication as director of the cia blah 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 However, his previous roles are fundamentally different from that of Secretary of State, who represents American values around the world. Okay, okay, hold up, Senator Gene Shaheen. Uh, You know, I'm not a guy that stands up and says, whoa, whoa, lay off the CIA all that much. But I used to work there. A lot of fantastic people work for that agency. And the, the CIA director has a very prominent role in the way the rest of the world views us and thinks about us too uh i i just i think that it's this uh i maybe i'm the guy who's just feeling a little bit of loyalty to his school instead of another school or something but come on oh the stuff oh the secretary of state role is such a bigger deal hmm. uh, anyway you know like, it, i know it's a little it's a little bit more high profile in the sense that you're the representative in foreign countries but everybody knows who the cia director is too anyway uh she goes on Uh, The Secretary of State is a policymaking position, and I continue to have deep concerns regarding Mr. Pompeo's past statements and policy views, particularly in regards to the LGBT community, uh, American Muslims, and women's reproductive rights. For those reasons, I've concluded I cannot support Director Pompeo to lead the uh, the State Department at this critical time. First of all, it's always a critical time, right? I mean, the State Department world peace would break out tomorrow and they would still tell us it's a critical time for 
you know, the foreseeable and they need more, they need bigger budgets at the state department, more perks for the bureaucrats. But this is just total nonsense for the Democrats. I, I like my strategy. I really think that uh, Trump should just say, look, if, if you don't want, if you don't want former army captain, top of his class at West Point, Harvard law grad, former congressman, entrepreneur, and patriot Mike Pompeo, uh, I got I got Secretary of State Bannon ready to rock. And, put, and you'd say, Buck, well, they would just vote that down immediately. All right, but at some point now, it's the Democrats won't let us have a Secretary of State. Uh, at some point, it's uh, clear that they are not letting the president have his picks. Now, I'm kidding about the Bannon thing, obviously, although that would be really interesting. Not the him getting voted down and Although the process around that would be fun, too. The media would have a fit. Can you imagine? And, and I want vintage Bannon. I would want Bannon, you know, dressed like he just rolled out from under a tarp under the bridge somewhere, hasn't shaved in like 10 days, hair down to the small of his back, the whole thing, right? I want, I want Bannon unleashed. Uh, but this is just more politics from Democrats that have, they have no guiding principle other than opposition to Trump. Here, here we have, uh, I, I guess I should have seen this coming. They're making a big deal over Pompeo because they need to make a big deal over something, I guess. But the, to say that women's reproductive rights, this is what really stuck out for me. Women's reproductive rights are an issue with Pompeo. So are we now, are we now to believe that the Democrats are, are such an extremist party on the issue of abortion that you cannot serve your government in a high-profile role if you're pro-life? That you're, you are excluded from serving in the cabinet, let's say, of, of even a Republican administration if you are pro-life? Uh, this, is the, this is what the Democrats will eventually have to answer for, the uh, depravity of their position on, on abortion and also the way that it became more and more extreme over time. The Democrats now do not have any room whatsoever for people who are pro-life in, in political life. They just don't. You cannot be a Democrat and be pro-life anymore. And people say, Buck, what about Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania? Yeah, he'll vote pro-choice. He just says he's personally pro-life, which is meaningless, I should note. You are a representative. You're an elected representative of your country. What you vote for when it comes to laws about the protection of life are much more important than what you mumble to yourself when no one else is around. But And then also on, on American Muslims, um, I don't know what... She's referring to specifically, I'm sure that if I went and did a little bit of a, a deep dive into the media matters side of things, there'd be all kinds of information there about how Pompeo has said crazy stuff like Islamic radicalism is a specifically serious terrorist threat against us. And yes, it does come from within the Islamic community. Really unfair, really crazy stuff, I'm sure. Things like that. That's my guess, at least. So uh, I hope that this goes through. I hope that Pompeo uh, gets through because I think he'd be very uh, strong for Trump. As we have mentioned, he also was part of the uh, advance team, in a sense, of laying the groundwork for Trump's very high-stakes talks with North Korea. But the president should be allowed to have a guy who is completely qualified uh, at his side running foreign policy. Without Democrats doing all the usual nonsense and political grandstanding around policy positions that that person may have. 
you know, there's not supposed to be a litmus test for being secretary of state based on what Blumenthal and Shaheen and a bunch of other clowns come up with. So uh, I, I still think he'll get through. But if he doesn't, man, it's the that de- you know, that the Democrats have just decided that. Well, I don't know. There's nowhere left. There's nowhere lower for them to go when it comes to lack of principle. So in many ways, they're just Democrats are just being who they are with this. Uh, I want to tell you a story coming up here. This is actually one that I saw online, and it's someone sharing his own experience that I will share with you. You ever think that you don't appreciate the kindness that someone else has shown you, or that maybe you don't realize when someone's reaching out to uh, connect with you, to be a friend, to be a positive force in your life? Maybe you dismissed them or looked down on them or didn't appreciate it enough. Uh, And there's always time to turn that around. I think it's important we remind ourselves as much as we can to be on the lookout for kindness as well to try to engage in kindness ourselves. i got a story to share with you after the break about just that that's gotten a lot of folks uh, thinking and it's gotten a lot of tension. So stay with me. One of the things I like to do on the Buck Sexton Show is tell you great stories whenever I can, from wherever I can, and I've got one for you. Uh, It's short, but it'll have a lot of meaning. I think that as you hear it, uh, you'll know that this is something that we've all been guilty of at one time or another. There's got to be a time in your life when you were dismissive of someone or uh, didn't act quite the way that you should have when you got to know the person better, understood their intentions better, and just one of the most important reasons to always be kind and humble. If you go through life doing those two things, I think you'll have overwhelmingly led a good life. And it will save us all from a lot of mistakes the more we can keep to those two things. Um, But this is from a a Twitter account, a guy named Thomas McFall. I don't know him, don't know anything about him. He had a, it's really a Twitter story that he told that has gone completely viral. And I'll just get right to the point. Here's what he writes. Hey, guys. I know I usually just post crappy jokes on my Twitter, but bear with me because I wanted to share something. So in one of my management classes, I sit in the same seat in the front every day. Every single day, I sit there. Now, I also sit next to some foreign guy that barely speaks English. The most advanced thing I've heard this guy say in English is, wow, my muffin is really good. The guy also has a habit of stacking every item he owns in the exact space I sit. His bag, his food, his books, and his phone are always right on my desk space. Now, every single time I walk into class, this guy says, Ah, Tom, you here, okay, and starts frantically clearing my desk of his belongings. He then makes it a habit to say, Ready for class, yeah? And he gives me a high five. Every day. This guy gives me a high five. I was always annoyed with this guy. I'm thinking, dude, you know I sit in this seat every day. Why are you always stacking your stuff here? And the last thing I want to do is give a guy who barely speaks my language high fives at 8 o'clock in the morning. Just get your crap off my desk. But today I came to class and was running a few minutes late. I'm standing outside because I had to send a quick text. I could see my usual space through the door out of the corner of my eye. Of course, my desk was filled with his belongings, the usual. As I'm standing there on my phone, 
Another guy who was also late walks into the class before me and tried to take my seat since it's closest to the door. The guy sitting next to me stops this dude from sitting down and says, I'm sorry, my good friend Thomas sits here. It was then that I realized this guy wasn't putting stuff on my seat to annoy me. He was saving me the seat every morning. And this whole time, he saw me as a friend, but I was too busy thinking about myself to take into consideration. Cheesy as it sounds, I was touched. I ended up going into class, and of course, he cleared the seat and said, Ah, Tom, you here. Okay. And I did get a high five. At the end of class, I ended up asking him if he wanted to get a bite to eat with me. We did, and we talked for a while. I got through the broken English, This guy moved here from the Middle East to pursue a college education in America. He plans to go back after he gets his degree. He's got two kids and a wife. He works full-time and sends all his leftover money back to his family. I asked him how he liked America as well. He said he misses his family, but it's exciting to be here. He also said, Not every American is nice to me like you are, Tom. I bought lunch, of course. Dude deserves it. He gave me a high five for buying lunch got to keep up tradition. Moral of the story, don't do what I do and constantly only think about yourself. It took me nearly the entire semester to get my head out of my butt and realize this guy was just trying to be my friend. Better late than never, I suppose. And again, that was all by Thomas McFall, a Twitter thread that's gotten a lot, a lot of attention online. And... You know, I think a lot I think a lot of you can probably think back to a time in your own life where someone was trying to be kind to you. Someone I know I can. Someone was um going out of their way for you and you dismissed them or you just ignored more likely, didn't pay attention, maybe even misinterpreted some of the gestures. And I think it's a reminder for all of us that while we need to each day try to be good people in our own right. Be aware of those around you who are also trying to be good people. Be aware of every time someone does even a small act of kindness for you, when someone decides that they're going to make even the slightest gesture to show you that they care or they're trying to be kind um, or they just want a friend and want to be your friend. Um, I think that this thread on Twitter got so much attention because it's a, a very good illustration of a reminder that we should all have. You know, be kind yourself, but also be aware of the kindness done to you by those around you. We're going to hit a quick break, and we'll be back with Roll Call. The show ain't over yet, folks. Y'all, Buck keeps it real. It's time for Roll Call. So I wanted to go with the most California-sounding music I could as an homage to my time out here on the West Coast, the Left Coast, as my friends who are New York transplants to L.A. say, the best coast. So it has been very lovely, and I have enjoyed it. And uh, tomorrow I'm going to be in San Diego, which will be a first time for me. So, woo, Cali, all kinds of stuff going on. Let's get into your thoughts, though. Roll call here. We have, first up, Richard. I'm listening to yesterday's podcast. Being a soon-to-be-retired teacher in Illinois, you do not have all the facts. 
I remember 40 years ago, the politicians were stealing from the teacher's retirement fund to pay for whatever they wanted. When you paint all state retirees with the same brush, you are wrong. I spent many years working for less than the industry while teaching. Well, I can understand that uh, people get sensitive about it. I know there are great teachers out there at uh, public schools and private and Catholic schools and parochial schools all across the country. Um, But if you want to talk facts, my friend, we need to discuss how the state of Illinois specifically uh, is $130 billion, uh, has $130 billion liability for pensions. That's too much. And it also has 14.5 or so, probably more like 15, let's call it $15 billion in debt right now, the state. That's a problem. It's a very big, and it's running deficits despite massive tax hikes. So uh, people can talk about what's fair or what they were promised. And by the way, what the, what the Illinois state legislature was doing 40 years ago doesn't really concern me. What they were doing 10 years ago does. Uh, but the truth is that some public pension systems are unsustainable. And it's your fellow Americans, your fellow taxpayers who are trying to sustain them. And uh, it's it's not right. So, yeah, I mean, look, depends on the state, depends on the system. Uh, but Illinois is a big, big problem. Uh, so but I appreciate your thoughts nonetheless, sir. And uh, it's, remember, it's never a personal. I'm, I'm not going after anyone personally when I talk about pensions or pension systems, or, except for the politicians. Uh, we operate within the boundaries set for us by the system. But we should understand where the system goes wrong and how we can fix it. Uh, next up, we have Jim writes, Hey, Buck, yesterday you mentioned uh, crack-a-lackin. Well, your show is not lacking crackers. Okay. I don't even know what that means, but I'll go with it. Uh, thanks, Jim. Uh, next up, we get uh, Alan, who writes, Trump promised more employment, and he's delivering. Just look at Comey and others who are making a tidy living off of their books, etc., about Trump. I wonder if anyone has put together a list of all the leeches getting rich off of Trump. You know, I didn't talk about this on the show earlier, Alan, but I did see the piece that said that if you wanted to write a bestseller in the last 12 months, nonfiction bestseller, although Fire and Fury was a fiction book, really, but if you wanted to do that, Trump was your single best topic. If you wanted to sell a lot of books, Trump was, uh, was a good one. So, yes, indeed. Brian is next up here. Uh, the Iron Maiden is actually in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and not Bogus Journey. Great movie, and don't forget the air guitar. Uh, Brian, I stand corrected. You are correct. Uh, Put them in the Iron Maiden is from uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Next up here, we have uh, Phil, who writes, Buck, you moving to D.C.? I don't think you meant to have your mic on the Tuesday evening podcast open. Um, Well, Phil, let's just say for right now I can neither officially confirm nor deny anything. I may be in the midst of... Uh, all kinds of very important changes, although I can tell you all this. A radio show is the foundation of what I do, and anything else that I do on, in addition uh, is, is just that. So the, this show is only getting bigger and more powerful in terms of reach across the country, and we are only growing the team. Um, am I moving to D.C.? Am I going to be launching a TV show in D.C. soon? We will have to wait on that for official confirmation. And it is also a, a reminder, because, uh, yes, there was a point yesterday where I was uh, teeing up one of our guests. And uh, sometimes, especially when I'm on remote, uh, the mic catches stuff and 
that's just the way that it is. But it's fine because I live by the maxim, all mics are always on. And so you got a little sneak peek there. Can neither confirm nor deny, though, what was uh, the specifics of what were said on the podcast yet. I will, though. Denny up next. Hey, Buck, love your show always. Anyway, I'm listening to Tuesday's pod. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Here we go. It seems a little extra audio made its way into the recording. A little behind the scenes. Maybe a spoiler. Are you really moving to D.C. to work on a TV show called The Hill? What network? Will you be behind the scenes or on camera? Denny, you know, you're, I don't want to spoil it. So uh, we're going to have an official announcement about everything soon. But like I said, radio show will stay exactly as is. Same time. Syndicated 125 stations across the country. Podcast, streaming, all that. Uh, but I might be adding on to my responsibilities, maybe, and spending a whole lot more time outside of New York City. So, yeah. Next up, we have uh, Becky, who writes, Hope you're enjoying L.A. You're kind of in my hood. I live in the West Valley. I'm assuming you're in the East. One suggestion as you make your way down to San Diego, I highly suggest you stop at the Irvine Spectrum and go to Honey and Butter Macaron. The macaroons? They are so good. I was staying in Irvine one night and bought six and ate all six. Becky, no shame in that game. I've, I've put away so many macaroons in my time, I can't even tell you. It's embarrassing. Uh, so hope we get some nice weather. Um, I'm also heading to San Diego this weekend at Shields High. Well, Becky, indeed. I, I, hope, uh, I hope the weather's great, and thank you for the suggestions about the macaroons. And I'm looking forward to my first visit to the beach in San Diego. First time ever. Uh, next up here, uh, we have... Uh, Sarah, who writes, hey, I'm listening to yesterday's podcast, and you told someone you were, oh, gosh, roar about the moving. Guys, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. The Freedom Hut is is gonna is alive and well. Um, I, I just need to wait for an official time to make an official announcement. And, and Sarah's asking, is Miss Molly coming with me if I go anywhere? And, of course, she says, we love Miss Molly. Well, I obviously do. And, yeah, she'll come with me wherever. Um, so that not, not to be... Uh, not to be stressed about that at all. Um, Kenneth writes, wanted to make you aware on the podcast last night. I think we caught, some- <laughs> oh, gosh, everyone. Okay, yeah, so uh, I was talking to Benny Johnson, who was our guest, and you may have heard me say something about a move to D.C. Like I said, everything's cool, everything is good, but um, we, I, I do not have an official, official announcement yet on that, so you need to just uh, trust me on that. Um, but let's just say that if Buck goes to D.C., is the swamp going to get drained even faster? I think the swamp is terrified of what happens when Buck goes to D.C. It's going to be wild. Uh, now we get into some of our emails, Team Buck, uh, official Team Buck at gmail.com. You want to talk to us there. We have Dave who writes, Me Too, the movement, ignores hip-hop for the same reason Islamic chauvinism is ignored. Values are normal normative. And if we acknowledge morals as valuable, well, that's just judgmental. Okay, fair enough, Dave. Uh, Thank you very much for the email. I appreciate it. Good to hear from you. Uh, We have Chuck from from Grand Rapids, one of our buddies here. Uh, Hey, Buck, excellent show today. 100% with you uh, on Scooter Libby, my biggest disappointment for Bush. On another note, I was listening to a list of the money Bill and Hill were collecting. In just in a few listings, they were approaching a billion dollars in donations to the foundation from all over the world. Is it fair to assume that the kind of people who give that kind of cash do not wish to be disappointed? 
given that Trump spoiled the party, is it fair to assume that many of his problems are payback? I guess I'm surprised the Clintons are still alive, or maybe that is why they closed the doors at the Clinton Global Initiative refunds. Um, so, and you mean that the Clinton Foundation is still alive? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they were, they were selling influence, folks. It's very obvious, and everyone knew it, and some people just pretended in the media, pretended not to, and maybe the DOJ pretended not to for very obvious political reasons. And that's why you have all this, this huge drop-off in donations to all the things that the Clintons were doing. And, uh, yeah, I continue to, uh, to look at this very, very closely. Um, that's the plan. Uh, I will make sure that we follow, not, in this case, follow where the money is not, because the money was supposed to be there if it were all about charity, and it is no longer there. And I think we have every right, every reason to ask why that is. I think we know. Podesta, by the way, very interesting article about how Podesta was this huge, you know, this is now uh, Tony Podesta, um, who's the brother of the uh, Clinton campaign manager, John Podesta, and how his whole world is just turned upside down because he was going to be the guy with a lot of access to the Clintons. Now he's not. That changes things pretty dramatically, doesn't it? All of a sudden, one's value, the value of one's company is different than they had uh, expected. Um, And then here we go. Uh, Schiff has, we're talking about Adam Schiff, has his bug-eyed head reared again. Thought he was silenced when their investigation ended. No, he still has evidence of collusion, which is known only to him. It was a nice break while it lasted. Boo Comey. This from Rita. Rita, thank you. And yes, boo Comey. Indeed. Uh, so that's going to be it for the Freedom Hut today. Makes me kind of sad. I was just—I feel like I was just getting into things. I'll be with you tomorrow from uh, San Diego. And just a quick programming note on Friday, because I'm going to be traveling, trying to come back to the East Coast. Uh, my friend Michael Palka, the Godfather himself, one of my earliest friends, advisors, and uh, uh, allies on radio from my days at the Blaze. He will be taking the helm of the Freedom Hut on Friday. Uh, but tomorrow from San Diego, I'll be joining you. Until then, you've got your plans, you've got your orders, team. Shields high.